Right, good morning everyone, and hello, I should say, rather than good morning to our friends listening on a podcast, whatever time of day it is you're choosing to listen to this. Um, so as we've been doing for the last few weeks, let's just keep a short time of quiet and organise our thoughts, or maybe even clear our minds of all thoughts, before we start. So for the last time, some words from Jane Williams's book, The Art of Advent, which is the Archbishop of York's Advent book for 2018. Above all the people we walk with through Advent, there is Mary. Mary is the one who carries inside her the child we are all waiting for. Mary is the one who has said yes to God's plan of salvation, and so she makes the whole thing possible. Hers is the final candle in the outer ring of the Advent wreath. Blessed are you, Sovereign Lord, merciful and gentle. To you be praise and glory for ever. Your light has shone in our darkened world through the childbearing of Blessed Mary. Grant that we, who have seen your glory, may daily be renewed in your image and prepared, like her, for the coming of your Son, who is the Lord and Saviour of all. Amen. So the 22nd of December, hang on to Advent. We're all doing Christmas carols. I'm virtually caroled out, I have to say. And we were on the one show doing more carols last night. And uh, it's very easy for Christmas to take over now. Um, the people on the one show were all saying, oh yes, well I've finished now, tonight's my last, my last gig that I've got to do for the, um, for the season. We haven't finished, us Adventers have not finished yet. We're in what is called the Ultima Dies, the last days, um, when we sing these wonderful O antiphons before the Magnificat at Evensong. And it's designed to ratchet up the tension, actually. That's what these, these are doing, these antiphons. Of course, in the, in the Roman Catholic rite, you have an antiphon at the Magnificat every day. Um, in, in the Church of England tradition, we still keep the, um, the O antiphons, the great O antiphons, um, from the 17th of December onwards. And they all start with the letter O, and they all have an attribute from the prophets of, of Jesus. Um, and it is, it is designed to just to wring the last bit of juice out of Advent. So don't give up on it yet. Now, we've spent the last three weeks looking at the story of our redemption and our relationship with God, and the love that he showed to our ancestors and continues to show to us. And we talked a little bit last week about how humans in relationships have ups and downs, uh, and that a relationship which isn't tested is not as strong as it might be. That it's, you know, the good times are wonderful, but it's the, when bad things happen to us and how we react to them and how we deal with it uh, that really proves the metal of the relationship. And that's no different for our relationship with God, because it has been up and down. You know, it was all newlyweds in the Garden of Eden, and everyone was very happy. And then there's a divorce, and then it gets messy. And, you know, I'm using a silly metaphor, but, but there, is, there is a sense that our relationship with God goes up and down, and he expects that and knows that, I'm sure, because he created us. 
and we have already talked about our free will and our stubbornness and how we get things wrong. It's sort of built in to the equation, I'd suggest. We looked at some remarkable individuals and how they have dealt with this relationship. We looked at Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac, a whole host of prophets, but principally Elijah and Isaiah. And last week we looked at the challenging and affirming character of John the Baptist. Now, John is a man of action. He urges us to do things, to repent, to attend to ourselves, and Advent is a season of action. I firmly believe this. I think it's a muscular, energised season. It's a season which is filled with imperative commands. To use the Latin words which crop up in a lot of the music that I do, veni, come, et noli tardare, and don't delay. That's, you know, it's, it's an instruction. Exurge, get up, vigilate, keep watch. It's these watchwords of the season which point out, I think, this energy. I'd also say, it's, I think it's a glorious can-do season. So the problem with Christmas and shopping and all that jazz is that it distracts us from the real energy. We, we expend a lot of energy in Advent getting ready for Christmas because of all the practical things we have to do. We should expend energy dealing with our spiritual sides and um, not maybe so much in making sure you've got the geese ready for Christmas Day, which is my main preoccupation on Monday morning. Um, now today, in this last session, we're going to look at one more remarkable person and her relationship with God, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now I'm not using the word virgin at the moment, and we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit later on. This Mary, this person who accepted God's word and through her obedience gave birth to a son who allowed God's promise to be fulfilled. And that in turn gives us the opportunity fully to repent of our sins and to experience that redemptive joy. Now through art and even through music we can get a rather stereotypical view of Mary or maybe a rather false view of Mary. We need to remember some things about her. She's young, she's inexperienced, she's questioning, she's obedient and she's thoughtful. And she goes through very difficult times. She's a homeless migrant, she's an immigrant at some stage. She's the mother of a child with a much older partner. Her emotions are toyed with. She's told, she's told that she will experience pain as a result of this child, not just through childbirth, but through the, the actions and life and death of this child. And we're also told that she, she stores all this up. She treasures is the word, I think, in the King James Version, which I think is beautiful. Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She keeps them in here. So she's a thoughtful young person and remarkable for that. Now, what points to her, before we get going on some music, I'd just like to, to examine a few things that point to her. There's some prophecies. We know that the prophets foretell and foretell. And here's Isaiah foretelling. In Isaiah 7, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7, 10 to 14. Now, I think... You all know that Emmanuel means God with us. So here is a promise of a Messiah being born of a young woman. The word used here is Alma, A-L-M-A-H, Alma, um, which means a young woman or a maiden. 
it's not virgin. That's, we get that word from the Greek New Testament, from Luke's uh, Greek. And it's, in, it's interesting because it does skew our view of her a little bit, I think. And again, that's, I keep promising we'll do things later. But the virgin and mother thing I want to have a look at a bit later. Certainly for the writer of St. Matthew's Gospel, um, this was a direct parallel. If you remember when Joseph receives a dream uh, and the, the angel Gabriel appears to him, Gabriel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's Matthew 1, 20-23. Matthew is always very keen to draw the links with the prophets. It's, if, you're, if you're thinking it in terms of um, something legal, he likes to provide evidence. He likes to link things up. This happened because the prophet said that. This is going to happen because the prophet has said the other. He's very much, he very much sees it as part of our story of salvation. Isaiah reveals more about uh, this young woman and this son in chapter 11, when he says, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This prophecy confirms, seems to confirm, that a young woman, a maiden from the tribe of Judah and from the family of King David, will give birth to this Messiah that Isaiah has promised us. There's actually an earlier reference, and it does get picked up in some music, um, from time to time. There's an earlier reference to this from Jacob, actually, himself, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 49.10, when he says, in his, his departing blessing, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and the obedience of the peoples is his. So there's a little bit of prophecy there, dealing with her. But as well as the prophecy, there are some very important um, strong female women. Oh, strong female women. I told you, Elizabeth told you I'm tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> some very important women <laughs> who, who point, who are either in relationship to Mary or who point things out. And the first one, of course, is, as you know, because you always start at the beginning, is Eve, uh, the mother of all living, as she's described in Genesis 3.20. Eve I think we can assume young, beginning of creation. Um, quite a lot of the other women I'm going to refer to are rather older. So there is a, there's a sort of parallel of age, if you like, although we don't know that. And of course there is this wonderful link that Eve and Mary are related because as Christ is the second Adam, so Mary is the second Eve. And our first piece of music is going to pick up on that in just a minute. There's also Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who bears Isaac in her old age. When Mary is told she's going to have a, a baby, she quite correctly says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? It's a perfectly reasonable question. 
in Genesis 18, 12 to 14, so Sarah laughed to herself when, when she hears the angel telling Abraham that she's going to have a baby. She laughs. After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? It's a wonderfully superior moment there from the Almighty. Genesis 18, 12 to 14. And there's the, the, the woman who I think is most um, important in Mary's backstory, which is Hannah, the mother of Samuel, thought to be incapable of bearing children. She gives birth to the prophet Samuel, and she utters a great hymn of praise in 1 Samuel 1, uh, which is very similar to Mary's Magnificat. And again, that's on the agenda for a little bit later. And of course, the other one is Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, who, uh, like Sarah, gives birth to a child in her old age and whose husband, this time, questions whether or not it could be possible. So you've got three women who are doing something very remarkable through the power of God, all questioning, or in Elizabeth's case, um, uh, questioning through her husband, except for one, and that is Hannah, who believes fervently that she will have a child. And we'll look at her story a little bit later, as I said. So let's go to our first piece of music. I'm breaking you in quietly and easily. Well, actually, not quietly, but easily this week. I, I want to play you, it's actually the, the piece on the right-hand side of your um, handout, Nova Nova. This is uh, an anonymous setting. It's, um, it's, the text is also anonymous. 15th century. There are a few textual variants, and I can't put my hand on my heart say all these words are exactly right in the version they're going to be sung. I did start listening to it, but I kept getting interrupted. But it's basically right. You, you do find that these carols, which exist in a variety of sources, have different, have different um, uh, textual variants. It's a simple melody, single melody, no harmony. Um, as such, it could be sung by the uninitiated uh, person on the street, if you like, as well as the experienced musician in the medieval period. And I want to draw your attention to its re refrain, Nova Nova, news, news, it means, Ave, feet ex Ava. Medievalists absolutely love drawing links and lines between things. So what they're saying here is that Ave, the first word of the angel Gabriel to Mary, hail, Ave, is Eve backwards. Ave, feet ex Eva. Ave is made out of Eve. So this is very much drawing uh, a comparison between Mary and Eve. As, as we mentioned, as Christ is the second Adam, Mary can be seen as the second Eve. And it's, it's interesting because it's, it's through Jesus being both God and man, being divine, yet born of a woman, that we can be redeemed. It's that, it's that partnership. Now, I'm not going to say this is a symbiotic relationship because that wouldn't be right. I don't think God needs us. He's not a God who needs, he's not a Greek or a Roman God who needs to be worshipped, has to have votive sacrifices. That's not what I'm saying. But it, it just, it, it, for me, it highlights that the, the importance and the depth of the relationship with God. It's important that Jesus is both man and God, divine and human. Uh, because it shows you how valued we are, I think. So here is uh, this short little thing, just to get you going. Um, it's a recording 
quite an old recording now made by the Clerks of Oxenford with David Woolston conducting one of the, um, in fact, well, the really first early, early music group. Slightly shorter rendition of the text you've got in front of you. I would just like to look at this text briefly. I love um, medieval poetry of this sort because they, they contain some really quite thorny theology and we're going to see that in a piece that comes up later. Um, on, on one level, it's very simple. Gabriel, of high degree, came down from the Trinity. Interesting, he comes down from the Trinity. Normally, people would say Gabriel comes down from heaven or God, but uh, they like linking everything up. He met a maiden in a place, that's simple. He kneeled down before her face. I love verse 3. When the maiden saw all this, it's a great phase, all this fuss, all this, oh gosh, all this stuff you're doing. When the maiden saw all this, she was sore abashed, he wished. She was taken back. Lest that she'd done amiss. The first thing she thinks is she's got something wrong. Now, there's nothing scriptural. There's nothing scriptural there, but it's the medieval mind working. It's making it three-dimensional for us. It's, it's basically saying, what would we do if the angel Gabriel suddenly appeared and went, hello? What would we think? We think, oh, my Lord, <laughs> you know, what, have, what have I done wrong? I think it's a, it's a lovely, lovely um, little... Um, Little moment. Then said the angel, Dread not you, don't be frightened. You shall conceive in all virtue a child whose name shall be Jesus. Then said the maid anon quickly, without hesitation, I am God's own truly, ecce ancilla domini. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And the word, the key word here for me is quickly. She doesn't have any doesn't have any moment of thinking, well, shall I, do I want to do this? Is it a good investment policy? You know, is it going to work out all right? No, no. Immediately. Something is asked of her, and she says yes, she accepts. Uh, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing, I think. Now, before we go any further in our music, I think we do need to look at Luke's description of the Annunciation. And I've printed this out for you. It's on the front page here, just alongside Nova. Um might just be worth, for those of you who like these things, remembering that we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation, that moment when Gabriel came to Mary on the 25th of March, which is exactly nine months before the birth of Jesus on the 25th of December. They did think about these things. And if you really like this sort of thing, you could also note uh, that the birth of John the Baptist, the one who comes before Jesus, is celebrated on June the 24th at midsummer, whereas Jesus is born at midwinter. So they are sort of opposites uh, within the year. Now here is, I just want to read through this and think about it a bit. Here is um, Luke's description uh, of the angel and the visit. Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, nice gesture. Don't need to say six. Doesn't need to say six. Could have said last month. In the, you know, in the summer, in the spring, lots of things start in the spring. The Canterbury Tales when April with its shower is sweet. Anyway, in the sixth month, it gives it extra, um, extra um, evidence. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So this is just information. Okay, you know her name, you know what she's doing, you know where she is. Okay, so he's giving evidence here. He's providing evidence. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Well, that could be a euphemism. 
I have to tell you, if the angel Gabriel turned up to me and said, greetings, favoured one, I would be on my knees absolutely terrified. It's quite possible Mary was as well. We have to remember that when we read anything, when we read anything, we have to look at the interpretation of the author and what they're choosing to do. But she's perplexed, so she's bothered, certainly. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is, pretty, this is a pretty momentous announcement. It's not only the physical business of being pregnant, but the promise of what this child is. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Say that to a young Jewish woman. It's incredibly powerful. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now Mary, in an extraordinary moment of calm, self-prepossession, says, how can this be since I am a virgin? She asks a question. And I think there are two reasons for that. We could assume that she is an extremely controlled and highly intelligent young woman. I think that's absolutely fine. We also need to remember that the, the Gospel writer of Luke is um, giving us evidence. He's, he's tying everything up and he wants us to believe. So, in a sense, Mary's acting as a foil to Gabriel. She's asking the question which we all want you to ask in our lectures, which allows us to talk for the next ten minutes on a subject that we understand. And Mary's question allows that. It allows the explanation. Again, the writer of the Gospel didn't need to put that in there. He could have just had Gabriel carrying on. But it says something to us about Mary, that she stops and asks the question. She wants some more information about this. The angel said to her, this is how it's going to happen, basically, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, he will be called Son of God. I'll just throw that bit in there. He will be called Son of God. He will be called John. Okay. He will be called... I, don't know, I can't remember now if the Lord gives any other names. Almost certainly. But John is the one we've had most recently, just a few verses earlier. You will name the child John. He will be called the Son of God. That's pretty momentous. And if you need any more convincing... And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. She goes right back to Genesis, to Sarah's reaction um, when Abraham um, tells her that, um, it's going to, that when she overhears that he will have, she will have a child. Then Mary said, Here am I. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. There's something open-handed about that statement. Here am I. It's, it's something I associate with being just laying yourself completely bare. The servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. It's an absolutely beautifully written, uh, and very beautifully translated, I have to say as well, um, beautifully written and beautifully structured telling of this story. Now, having done that, I think we need to listen to some music. I'm going to play a piece immediately. It's called The Angel Gabriel. It's another carol in harmony this time, not in unison. I'm not going to say anything about it, but I'm going to see how you react to it.
Choir of New College, Oxford, we've just been listening to, under Eddie Higginbottom. Any reactions to that? It does dance along. It's in it's in an, a, a, a quaver. It's in nine. I can't remember if it's in nine eight or twelve eight now. But yes, which is a, 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 a division of three divided by three. So yes, it has a dancing quality, but it has another quality. Is it happy? Prayerful, worshipful. Yeah. There's no real sense of foreboding. Um, it's just a message. Mm. Yes, you see, well, that's interesting. The saying there's no sense of foreboding about it. I agree with you. I don't think there's a sense of foreboding. But I, what I get is an extraordinary sadness. I get a, I get a sense of um, there's just something, because it's in A minor. You'd expect something like this to be in a major key, much more positive. So, you know, um, things which are in D major often have uh, trumpets and drums and are very upbeat. I don't think this is a trumpet and drums moment, but A major would not be unreasonable for this. Um, it's, in, it's in A minor, and it's in a modal form of A minor, um, where the, the leading note is not always sharpened. It makes us feel rather wistful and thoughtful. And there is a bit in the middle that goes into its relative major, which is C major. Again, that's, and, and when it says, um, all hail said he, thou lowly maiden, goes into C major. So it does go into the major. Um, but the Gloria, to set the word Gloria, Gloria in A minor, is rather wonderfully. Ah, well, you see, I don't let my congregation sing it. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> A friend of mine here is just making a slightly derogatory remark about congregational singing of that carol. It's a hard carol to sing. Yeah, it is hard because the meters, the, 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 the meters, it, it's consistent, but the meters quite hard to get. The lines are long. Yeah. But it is. Where it succeeds, actually, I think in many ways, although you say it in a sense that the mind gives it the sound, in fact, because of the repetition of the word, most highly favourable thing, it's in a sense something sad. No, it isn't. And I wouldn't say it's sad, but I'd say it's wistful. I think it's... Yeah. It's wistful. It's wistful. It's not... It's, it's, it's something which has got a, a hint of... You know, it's just that the, the hint of minorness. Just, you just know that this birth, this great introduction, this annunciation, is going to lead to great sadness for Mary. She doesn't know exactly what that is yet. She hasn't even been told, you know, that Simeon and Anna who are going to fill her in on a lot more stuff later on in the story. But she's already thinking, she must already be thinking, what does this mean for me? And she's a young girl. She's a vulnerable young girl. She's homeless. It's quite, it's quite something. And I, I think this little carol, this simple, simple little carol, actually picks up on something really important um, for her. Yeah, she's, the lady here is just saying that she's addressed as somebody much older. Is that older or above her age? Yeah, that's right, above her age, yes. Well, this is very much in the tradition of adoring Mary, most highly flavoured... Uh, oh, sorry. I'm just about to go into chorister mode here, who, of course, they always sing most oily flavoured gravy, is the they sing. Um, they're not in performance, I hasten to add, only in rehearsal. Um, most highly favoured lady, yes, I mean to be a lady, the Lady Mary, is, is rather chivalric. 
Um, and this is very much in that tradition um, of addressing her as, um, as, as a, a, a noble, as a noble person. It could be. Well, it is a dance. It is a dance. The nature is saying it sounds a little Elizabethan. It's no, it's that, it's that region of Spain. Yeah, yeah, that's where it comes from. So the tune and the words come from Spain, and it's, um, it's, yeah, it is, it is a dance. You shouldn't be. It's, it's a slow, courtly dance. Absolutely. So we've we've just thought about the story of the Annunciation, and we think we've agreed that Mary's sensible. She asks questions. She's calm, amazingly calm, and she accepts. She accepts the word of God and what he's got planned for her. Now, of course, in one way, Mary is actually rather lucky at this point in her life. Because, again, if the angel Gabriel appeared to us now and said, no, just so you know, this is going to happen in the next nine months, we might be able to turn around and say, okay, yeah, I could, if that's God's plan for me, I can do that. But we don't get the angel Gabriel. This is where it's hard for us. You know, it would be great, wouldn't it, if the angel Gabriel could appear in the House of Commons next week and say, OK, this is, this is what's going to happen, guys, all right? And we've got to go, yes, thank heavens. You know, it'll be right. But the fact is he won't, or at least he hasn't yet. Um, it's, we have to struggle and work things out, and this is part of our human condition. So I've, I've spent a, a few occasions saying that the, 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 the Lord is not like a Greek or a Roman deity who will suddenly appear, and you can't sacrifice an animal and look at its entrails and decide whether it's all going to be all right or not. You know, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not fortune-telling that, that it works like that. We, we have to struggle and work things out for ourselves. So on one level, and I'd only say on one level, it is relatively easy for Mary to accept um, because of the extraordinary way in which she's told. I wonder if she's had a dream, whether she would have believed it straight away. Because Joseph gets a dream. She doesn't get a dream, she gets an appearance. And I don't know if that's something to do with it. Moving on, staying with the Annunciation, but moving on to another piece. I want to do something which you would expect to be rather more sophisticated. Um, uh, this is a setting of John Taverner's music. You can see it just below Gabriel's message. It's called Annunciation. You, the text you now, or it now know already, because we've read it. Um, John uh, was a man who moved away from intensely complex music, having, having written some, um, some very challenging stuff in his earlier years. Once he'd embraced the orthodox faith, um, he very much believed in the simplicity of holiness as well as the beauty of holiness and how you don't need to make things too complicated. Um, so he's, uh, this is his uh, piece called Annunciation, and it's sung by a choir from up in St Andrews, the University of St Andrews, um, St Salvatore's Chapel College, uh, Chapel Choir, I should say. And I, it's very still. Well, actually, I'll, I'll play it to you, and then we'll talk about it because you're good enough at this music stuff now, um, in order to be able to do these things. Right. What do you notice? Yeah, so this gentleman is just saying that it's not really about Gabriel being corporeal. It's not about physical. An appearance or something—it's more like a—it's more like a cloud or a confusion, a confusion of holiness. So you, it's just actually quite hard to hear the words that Gabriel. You can hear what Mary's saying very clearly in her quietly within her heart sort of way. That's very clear. It start, the word "hail" is clear. You get that, 
And, but as the music becomes bigger, as it goes, the, the extremities of the upper and lower parts of the voices, you are, as it were, surrounded by a sort of holy energy, which is both confusing to be slightly, and enveloping. And I think that's, I think that's what he's up to here. It's, um, it's, very, it's a very effective piece, I think. Never very easy to sing, John Tavener. He always likes to push you know, the, the extremities, except in one or two pieces, the extremities of the voice. But it's very powerful, I think. Yes, that's absolutely spot on, sir, I would say. It's possible, I and mean, he layers. So, what, so what, what he's doing is he starts off with a relative. Obviously, Mary has a different texture. She's 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 up there, but she's quite compact. Um, whereas the um, the chorus, if you like, which is singing the words of Gabriel, starts off as it were within that range and a sort of modest range, and then gets bigger each time. So he's literally adding more notes to things. So that's what you're hearing. He's actually adding more notes. It isn't simply repetition. And the other thing he's doing is taking perfectly ordinary melodies, for example, something which goes la 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 la, something like that, but he's putting one on one pitch, starting on the note G, for example, and another one starting, starting on the note A, and making them go up together. So two perfectly ordinary things, juxtaposed with each other, help to create a sort of level of confusion. So it is all about this this confusion, it's, it's, like, it's, it's not frightening, is it? But it's sort of otherworldly. It's, it's not of this world. It's not of our experience. You sort of convey the immensity of the message. It does. The immensity of the message is very good. Yeah, it does. It does. And uh, therefore, I find the way he set her question utterly brilliant. Because in the midst of all this, she's there like this rather calm, iconic, dare one say, icon-like, um, uh, who's very he's very calm and expressing the question expressing the reserve how is this possible but at the same time ex ac accepting it I just feel that she's allowing again it feels like an open-handed gesture to me that she's allowing it to come in now let's keep going with the music because your challenge is coming up in a moment you know I like to give you a challenge except last week when I let you off so you're getting a doubly difficult one this week. before we get to your challenge I want to look at one more piece in relation to Mary in the way that we've been discussing, and that is Of a Rose by Kenneth Layton. It's on the same page, too, of your handout. And this is one of those great medieval texts of which I was referring, and I promised you we'd have one, and here it is. Uh, I'm slightly in love with the music of Kenneth Layton, I have to say. I, I think he's a brilliant composer. Um, but let's just look at this text. Of a rose, a lovely rose, of a rose is all my song. Unnecessary repetition. Completely unnecessary. Let's get rid of it. Let's be efficient. It's so beautiful, though. Of a rose, a lovely rose. The idea of Mary as a rose, is, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of imagery and iconography around this. But if you imagine a, a rose which is very full of petals, and before it opens, the bud which is there, full of um, beautiful, sweet-smelling petals is, is a metaphor for Mary. Listen, nobles, old and young, how this rose at outset sprung. In all this world I know of none I so desire as that fair rose. So we're in the land of chivalry, medieval chivalry, um, where um, the, the young uh, man, one assumes, not necessarily young actually, but the man is desiring the perfect woman. 
which is what um, the chivalric tradition is all about, that, that women are perfect and to be um, desired and appeased sometimes and looked after. Um, the angel came from heaven's tower to honour Mary in her bower and said that she should bear the flower to break the devil's chain of woe. Well, this is quite nice because it's not Adam and Eve. It's now the devil. Okay, the devil's done all this. And um, certainly if you read your Paradise Lost, uh, you would absolutely know that um, Milton believes that the devil had all this plan from the word go and he descends into a mist and comes up through a fountain in the Garden of Eden. That's how he gets in there. Milton was very bothered about that. How did Satan get into the Garden of Eden? God's perfect and doesn't make mistakes. How Satan got into the Garden of Eden? So Milton invented a rather clever way for him to come in. Sorry, that's entirely by the by. Um, but it's the devil's chain of woe. So this is almost like a, 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 a supernatural contest between the devil and God that they're referring to here. In Bethlehem, that flower was seen, that's Mary, a lovely blossom, bright of sheen. The rose is Mary, heaven's queen. Out of her womb, that blossom rose. The first branch is full of might that sprouted on the Christmas night when the star of Bethlehem shone bright for far and wide its luster shows. So we've got three branches here. So we're talking about this shoot, the shoot that comes from the stem of Jesse. First branch is full of light. The second branch sprang forth to hell, goes down, the devil's fearful power to quell. So this is a promise, this is a foretelling, that it will break the power of hell. And there, henceforth, no soul could dwell so as a result of this child being born, we do not have to suffer the end of death, the finality of death. To heaven sprang the third shoot, sweet and fair, both stem and root, to dwell therein and bring us good. In priestly hands it daily shows. This is a nice bit of medieval teaching here. So, the, the, this root, like a sword, parries the ground and destroys the devil. It also stretches up to heaven, connects earth to heaven, and we get to see it remembered every day at the Eucharist. That's what it's saying. It's, it's explaining Eucharist to you. We get to remember, to remember, literally, to remember Christ's body at the altar through doing that. So, I have a go at this one. Kenneth Layton. Um, and it is sung by... Uh, oh yes, the Gabrielli Consort, a new recording from the Gabrielli Consort conducted by Paul McCreesh. Do you like it? I think it's just amazing. That piece. Sorry, I missed a verse off the end. I haven't realised that. There's, a, there's one more verse on the end. But it's, it's very beautiful. I'm interested that he gives the, um, the solo part to a, a woman's voice, which I think is great. As I said, you would, you would associate it in chivalric terms with it being a man talking to about a woman. So it's brilliant that it's a woman doing it. And she is sort of Mary, as it were, you could say. Um, but I absolutely love the clarity of it. Anyone got anything they want to say about before I just do... I'm going to do a few more Rose things for you. Because uh, Rose, as I said, is a, great, um, is, is a great symbol for Mary. Of course, the rosary. This comes from this as well. You know, the crown of roses. And Mary is often referred to as the mystical rose in the Roman Catholic tradition, the rosa sine spinis, the rose without a thorn. So the thorn is the, is the sin, original sin, the bit we got wrong. Mary doesn't have that bit. She's sine spina. 
She also has some other, some other attributes as well. She's sometimes referred to as a blackthorn bush, or shown as a blackthorn bush. Anyone know why? It's, um, it's, this is a real bit. The medievals, they had too much time on their hands. That's the trouble. <laughs> they didn't have anything to do. They had no television, no internet. Um, the blackthorn bush was thought to be the bush that Moses saw on fire in the desert, which was burnt and yet not damaged. So therefore, it's, the blackthorn bush is a sign for Mary, which was consumed by the power of God in the way that John Taverner showed us, but it is not, is not, it still remains intact at the end of it, it's still a virgin. Uh, a lily, I'm sure you've seen lots of art with, with lilies knocking around the place, you know, beautiful, pure, white, all that. She's also often an enclosed garden, a walled garden, because again, she is protected from the sin of the world, and going through what she goes through, she still remains a virgin. So she's, there, there are many, and there are many, many more things, those are just three that I happen to remember. Um, it might just be worth pausing at this point to say that, of course, there are some problems with our perceptions of Mary. And uh, it's nothing to do with her. But, you know, it really comes from the fact that she's either a virgin or a mother. And I, we can't also blame our predecessors too much of this in the Western Church because we are sorely lacking a serious female figure in our iconography. So in the, in the tradition of the East, the Holy Spirit is often represented as a woman. So part of the Trinity has its proper female thing here. For us in the West, you have, I mean, to call a spade a spade, an old man, a young man, and a bird, a dove. That's what you get, okay? So, so Mary becomes very important for people because, first of all, where do you, what, what, what do we do with the more feminine parts of our natures, which, we, which in, we all inhabit? We are both male and female in terms of our psyche and our intellect, different parts in different ways. But, you know, it's a necessary part. But also, where is kindness and sweetness? I mean, I don't want to say those are feminine virtues. But if you're, going to, if you're in the Renaissance period, in the medieval period, God is a God of war. He takes you to war. He's on my side. He's on flags. And he goes around beating people up. You know, we go around beating people up, and we take our, him with us. So where is clemency? Where is justice? Where is justice in terms of fairness? Um, and we're, we're sorely lacking... Um, that. So it's not surprising that, that the cult of Mary grew in the way that it did. Um, but it has landed us with a problem, because it appears as if, um, in order to um, you know, be an appropriate woman, you either have to be a mother, you have to fulfil your life as a mother, or you have to remain intact and a virgin. And that's just not accurate or good for us to have that image. And I think it's been a particular issue for the, the alternation of women over the years. You know, we, we carry a lot of baggage with us. We are, I could, I could quote that um, Philip Larkin poem, but I won't. Um, we, are, we, are the, we, we do carry baggage with us from our forebears. Um, and it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. It causes a bit of a problem. It's not her, but it's what we've needed her to become in our history. Uh, the, the, the Orthodox um, tradition, I think, is, is, is a slightly more helpful thing, where she's re referred to as, as the God-bearer. Bishop of the, the old Bishop of London, Richard Charters, was very fond of talking about Mary the God-bearer, and his, that great voice that he, that he still has. Um, uh, and, you know, that's I think, is a more helpful image for us. You know, I, think I would forget the virgin and the mother bit in that sense, that the idea of being the God-bearer, the person who's worthy enough and important enough to bear Christ... Um, and it's, it's interesting that, um, I nearly played this to you, but I decided I wouldn't have time. 
There's a beautiful piece, two beautiful pieces by Thomas Luis de Victoria, the, the Spanish Renaissance composer. O Manu Mysterium, um, O Wonderful Mystery, a piece for um, uh, Christmas, and Veri Languores Nostros, Truly He Has Borne Our Sins. And about two-thirds of the way through each piece, um, he, uh, in the first piece, O Manu Mysterium, he talks about Mary bearing Jesus, and he uses a particular three-bar piece of music in terms of melody and harmony. And when he talks about Jesus being born on the wood of the cross in Veri Languores Nostros, he quotes exactly the same music. Now, I don't know which one came first. We don't tend to know that about Renaissance writers. Um, but the idea that they are both bearing Jesus and they're both worthy to bear Jesus, I think is a much more helpful image for us, for Mary, uh, than some of the stuff we've, um, we've, we've had to deal with. Now, well, that's, that's absolutely right. So this lady's talking about, um, talking about how, being careful how we interpret things. Um, yes, a- a- absolutely. I mean, again, at the risk of offending um, my uh, colleagues of mine who are absolutely hardline in their biblical um, beliefs, it's a book, and it's been written by various people. And as I was saying when we were looking at the Annunciation story, you have to look at what the narrative is and what the, what the writer is attempting to do. Um, I entirely agree with you, and that's why I mentioned the fact that we are lacking... The, 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 in, in our iconography, if you like, of the divine, we are slightly lacking the feminine side. And I think that's exactly what they were picking up on with Mary, the purity, um, the perfection, the, the femininity of her. What I would say strong characteristics, you know, of acceptance and strength. She's strong, this woman. She's a strong woman. You know, forget all the statues with the ghastly bits of stuff stuck on. You know, she's a strong woman. I don't know. There are all sorts of legends. I mean, Joseph is supposed to be about 107, I think, if you read some of the legends. Yeah, yeah. Truly, if you go back and look at some of the bizarre legends, yeah, there are some very old things. I don't know. But I'm using the, using the word that we've got um, in Isaiah, which talks about a young, a young woman, a young girl, um, and the fact that they're saying virgin, that Luke is saying virgin. I think she's, yeah, she's young. I mean, in a sense, I don't think it matters the exact age. Um, that's that, that, that it's it's more it's more to do with the fact that she's inexperienced. It's the inexperience which actually I find completely compelling. I just I just think it's extraordinary for a for a young person of any sort to come face to face with this sort of power. Um, and talking of which, talking of coming face to face with the power, I want to look at the Magnificat. Your challenging bits coming up. Um, I want to look at the Magnificat. You've got the words in front of you. I don't need to read them out. I'm sure most of you will have come across them in various forms. This is the Book of Common Prayer translation, of course. Um, and this Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat, from Luke 1, 46 to 55, um, has some striking similarities with another hymn of praise which I've, to which I've already referred, which is um, Hannah's words after the birth of the prophet Samuel. Uh, and I love the story of Hannah because um, it's... Eli, the priest in the, in the temple, is fantastically tetchy and dismissive of her. And she goes up to the tabernacle to pray, and um, she's praying silently and obviously moving her lips. And Eli thinks she's drunk, and he goes and tells her. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's fantastic. Um, although we shouldn't forget, of course, that at Pentecost, um, it's, it's the case, isn't it, that, um, that people think the apostles and Mary, who's there, are drunk. In the middle of the day, because they're speaking in tongues. Um, but here's, I just want to read you 1 Samuel 1, 12 to 18, which is the this, this story of Hannah. 
It says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. This is when you have to say things. If you're going to pray in the Spirit, you've got to say stuff. It's no good just you know, doing it silently. You can't do the meditation. You've got, to, you've got to make some noise. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favour in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. Let your servant find favour in your sight. Well, Mary's the one who does that, of course. Highly favoured, as we know. So um, Hannah's um, great hymn of praise, when uh, the birth of Samuel, starts with, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God. I think we can assume that Mary knows this text. So her... Her spontaneous outburst when she goes to meet her cousin Elizabeth is not without foundation. She is drawing on the traditions of the upside-downness of God. Rough places, plain. Valleys up there, hills down there. The rich sent away empty. The poor. Um, Hannah is actually much more um, explicit, even. Although, of course, we're tempered because we have it in the Book of Common Prayer translation. This is a more... Aggressive. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full, so those who are full, have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry are fat with spoil. It's, it's quite visceral um, language. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You know, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't pull its punches. This text. Now, Mary, um, Mary's Magnificat. I would suggest to you, has become slightly um, stylized in the words of the Book of Common Prayer. I'm going to, apologies if you were on my Advent course in 2011, um, those real diehards, I'm going to do exactly what I did then. I'm going to play two versions of the Magnificat. One is by Charles Villiers Stanford, uh, and one is by Sir Michael Tippett. I should have said Sir Charles Villiers Stanford, he's also a Sir. Uh, and I want you to tell me which one gets closest to the spirit of the Magnificat and to tell me your reactions to it. And I need to warn you, the second one is a bit loud, so, and it starts a bit shockingly, so I might have to t turn, just bear with me if I have to turn it down. Here's the first one. So that was the Tippett and John service, sung by the Choir of St. John's College, Cambridge, the 1964 recording, which I picked because the, that's when it was written. Actually, it might have been, sorry, 65, I can't remember. Um, but it was written for that trumpet stop that trompetta royale stop, and it's been toned down a bit subsequently in the organ. I wanted you to hear what Tippett wrote for. And the Girls' Choir of Norwich Cathedral singing Stamford beforehand. So which one do you like best? <laughs> Hands up. Who likes the Stamford? So yes, the, 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 Stamford is, the Stamford is much more... It's a crowd-pleaser. It's very, very good music. Very good music. Um, let's, just, let's just tease that out, and I'll come on to some other ones. Let's just tease that out. So Tippett is writing for the trompetta royale, of um, St John's College, Cambridge. 
Stanford, you probably can't hear what Stanford is doing in that recording, um, sadly, but the, the right hand of the organ is doing a sort of up and down, a sort of rather string-like, arpeggiated figure, which um, I always, always take it to be Gretchen am Spinnerade, um, Schubert's great song, Gretchen at the Spinning Wheel. Um, and there is, some, again, some iconography of Mary, who's spinning sometimes, spinning the veil of the temple, which is going to be rent in half. And it's very much of a sort of Schubert... Uh, type and it's all lovely. Everything's lovely. There's a lovely warm glow over over the cathedral as the sun is setting down, and it's all just beautiful. So, so yeah, the, the, I was about to say that you know, Stanford is is writing a Gretchen spin, rather gentle, stringy thing. Tippett is writing in his right hand, in your face. You must pay attention to this. You can't ignore what's going on here. So, yes. I think we need both of them. Is the answer? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, we, we absolutely, abs- yes, this lady's just saying, don't we need the tippet? I think we, like in all art, in all art, we have to be challenged, and that sometimes means we have to come face to face with something, and we think, oh, I don't like it, I don't like it very much. And that's okay, actually. My old English teacher um, had a great maxim, which is that if you don't like something, always assume the fault is within yourself, until you can express exactly what it is you don't like. You can say, well, I don't like it because of this and I know. That's fine. If you can say why you don't like it, it's fine. If, you, if, your, if your gut instinct is, I don't like it, then you need to do a bit more work. I think that's a very good rule of thumb. Now, I'm going to give you a quick reward because to finish off, um, because you've listened and coped with the tip. It's so well. I don't want you to go away with uh, slightly traumatised. So I'm also just going to let you... Um, I'm just going to let Christmas peek in a little bit. I'm going to play you a very wistful lullaby, medieval lullaby. Lullabies are extraordinary because they exist in every tradition. Even in our um, Islamic brethren's um, tradition, where often music is not regarded as appropriate, um, parents sing lullabies to their children. So it's a truly universal language. Um, And here you have um, a little carol called As 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 You Lay On, Jolis Nicht, Jolis Yule, that is... um, and you have the, um, the medieval um, English on one side and the translation uh, just across from it there. Um, and I want to put this down because the lullabies are usually comforting and soothing. Uh, and this is on one level, but bearing in mind what we've discussed about the angel Gabriel and other things, I think you should have to listen to it. I also think you should have a look at the refrain. Lule, 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 my dear mother, sing lule. So she, the child is asking, the child is asking for someone, we don't know who it is at the start, to sing a lullaby. And the, somebody's watching this, we are watching. As I lay on Yule night alone in my longing, I thought I saw a welfare sight, a maiden rocking her child. We don't actually know who it is yet, but it becomes obvious. And the child wants to know what he's going to be when he grows up. That's what you do, isn't it, as a parent? You think about what your children are going to be doing when they grow up. Uh, and she says, I don't really know, apart from what Gabriel's told me, oh, I don't really know what's going on. But there's a very real sense, I think, that um, the whole thing, is, it's, it's got a, this tinge of sadness to it. So I'm going, to, I'm going to let you listen to this and sign off with this piece. I don't think you need words after this. Um, it's a very beautiful recording from the Martin Best Ensemble.